0: This podcast is sponsored by Richard C. Owens Publishers. Welcome to Read by Example, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy. And today I am talking with the authors of Made for Learning, How the Conditions of Learning Guide Teaching Decisions. It's a Richard C. Owens publication out in August 2020. The authors are Deborah Crouch and Brian Camborn. Welcome. It's can,
1: good to be here with
0: you. I came across this book from Mary Howard, and she says, You must talk to Brian and Deborah about this book coming out. It's going to be very good. And so I mentioned it to another uh, author, Reggie Routman, and she's like, Oh, you must interview them. And I'm very honored to talk with you today. Uh, this book is just about uh, the conditions for learning, obviously, but really at the center of it is engagement how we engage students and rethinking what it means to, to teach. So if you can just talk about that, how do you define student engagement?
2: Um, would you like me to go first, Deb? Please.
1: Yes, go ahead, Brian. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Um, engagement to me is um, a complex concept and it's a mix of a number of um, different forms of behavior. It's It's got, Overtones of attending, you can't engage with a demonstration or an experience unless you attend. But it's a, it's a little different from motivation. Um, I find a lot of people confuse engagement or conflate rather than confuse engagement with motivation. And in my mind, they're, they're different. Um, I suppose the best example I can give you is from my own experience. Um, When I was uh, still gainfully employed, fully employed for the university, one of my lecture rooms uh, opened out onto the mountain behind the university. And there was a, a group of hang gliders who would leap off that mountain and glide down to the football oval and I was um, fascinated by them. I would watch them. I would stop lecturing and watch them drift down. And um, I realised that I was highly motivated to watch them. I found the display very compelling. But I didn't engage terribly deeply with it because I realised that if you asked me, say, to draw a and get all of the uh, attachments and straps and things in the right position, I'd be very hard put to do it. So I realised that even though I was highly motivated to watch the display, I didn't engage with it for a number of reasons, which I can go into later. Uh, But I think I should let Deb have a go at talking about what she thinks about engagement. From her perspective
1: Well, I think as I, as I spend a lot of time in classrooms, one of the things that I think we um, often think of when engagement comes to mind is is like looking at how kids look on the outside, and we start thinking about, like with our kindergarteners, you know their feet are tucked under, their hands are in their lap, they're smiling and looking ahead, and you know we, we, we start thinking about those outward behaviors, and I think you know for me. Um, it's thinking more about how that child is starting to view themselves as a learner. You know, Brian um, and I talk about principles of engagement um, in the book. And the first principle is seeing yourself as a doer of what it is that you are um, trying to learn. And I think some of the, some of the ways that you know in, in Brian's example there, like see, do you see yourself actually going out there and you know, jumping off that cliff? you, know, you can be entertained but you're not necessarily what we would determine as engagement uh, or as engaged. Um, uh, I, the other three principles, one was um, one is understanding the purpose of what it is that you're learning, that you uh, realize that you're free from harm, any type of psychological or physical harm if you make your attempts to, to learn something. And uh, one of the big pieces of, of engagement has to do with that relationship and that community that um, exists in that learning environment. Um, I know as I as I work with teachers who are getting ready to come back into these digital learning worlds, um, the one question that always comes to mind is how do I engage the children? Um, and so one of the big challenges sometimes is when we start thinking about all of this online learning, we've gotta use these same ideas about principles of engagement as we think about what it means to be engaged in a digital world versus that regular classroom world.
0: And that's what I took from your text too. And um, being the doers and identifying with the, you know, whether it's hang gliding or reading, but you actually are becoming that role. And I actually was teaching some summer school via zoom this summer. And um, I changed the way I approached that teaching. And I would say as learners, we're going to do this together and versus today you're going to learn about, um, which is a much different stance, I think. And and that's what I was so impressed with with the book, too, was just how you describe, especially Brian, and how you describe the way you've thought about reading comprehension and creating meaning from an acquiring model to uh, a constructive model. Um, can you just say more about that and just how that shift happened and, and what that shift means?
2: Um. Essentially, Matt, um, as a very young teacher, I was confronted with what Deborah calls a mismatch between what I'd learned in my pre-service teaching course, and what was actually happening in my classrooms. Um, It was a terrible mismatch. Um, I discovered that in any class that I took in the first four or five years, of my teaching career, and you have to remember I was very young, we, I began teaching at age 19. Um, I went into pre-service teacher education at 17, and all we had was a two-year preparation course, which really designed us to be really good practitioners. We could put things into place, but we definitely were not um, creators of curriculum. The curriculum was given to us, and we were told to implement it. And one of the things I learned in my um, pre-service teaching course was behaviourism. It was the dominant theory of learning at the time. It was uh, touted as being scientific and proven, and I, I adopted it. Uh, I really, I got high marks for my knowledge of psychology and and, um, behaviorism. But when I got out to teaching, I noticed that all of the principles of behaviorism I was putting into place, weren't working for some kids. There There was always five or six kids in the class that I took. And the class sizes in those days were about 30, whom I knew I would never be able to teach even the simplest things, too. No matter how hard I tried, they would couldn't seem to learn the simplest things about math or reading, or whatever it is I was trying to teach them. And the only explanation I could get for that from my principals and supervisors was a deficit explanation. I was told, you know these these kids are indigenous or they're poor or they're just dumb, just keep them busy and and get on with teaching the kids who can learn. Now, I discovered by observing those kids in the playground and actually listening to them and watching them, that outside of my classroom, they were capable of the most complex kind of learning, more complex than anything I was trying to teach them. And that mismatch forced me to look very closely at the theories that I was trying to put in place. And I I really forced myself to interrogate them. And one of the things that I discovered was that the model in my head was one where I expected, or the model expected kids to acquire knowledge and i realized much later that the use of that word acquire brings with it a a whole host of assumptions about uh, what i eventually discovered to be uh, what the cognitive scientists call deep metaphors Um, the verb acquire demands that you acquire something. And when you talk about acquiring knowledge, it assumes that knowledge is some kind of um, stuff, some reified kind of stuff that has weight, that can be measured, that can be uh, dissected, that can be stored and can be transmitted or transferred. And I realised that I was being forced by that metaphor, that acquisition metaphor, and all of the discourse around it, I was being forced to teach in what was called a transfer of information model. And it wasn't until I decided to look at learning through a different kind of lens, a biological lens, that I discovered that nature had really designed us to make meaning using symbols. We're the only species on God's earth that has the ability to create meaning from abstract symbols, not only language, but art and mime and gesture and so on. And once I started looking at the discourse of biology and evolution, and looked at learning through that discourse, I realized that in order to change the way that I thought about learning and thought about teaching, I had to uh, apply a moratorium on my own use of the discourse of acquisition and consciously try to use the discourse of meaning-making. And I had had to learn ways of talking Ways of communicating that avoided the acquisition or uh, discourse of acquisition metaphors, and insisted instead on meaning making. And I had to help the kids that I taught do that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of rich language description in the book, a lot of dialogue. And I know Deborah was uh, featured uh, more than once in there with with her work in schools. And and Deborah, can you just think of one example? Um, or just a a general idea of what this looks like in practice, uh, what Brian's describing?
1: Oh, it's, it's that, it's that, this is one of those things. I think it's not necessarily what, what things would look like in a classroom sometimes as much as it's the language that you're hearing, the interactions, um, uh, you know, between the kids and the teacher and the kids and each other and the way that um, that the kids come come to meaning, like the way that, that um, we think about it. So I think, you know, if I'm in classrooms, one of the things that I wanna be thinking about as a teacher is what are kids already doing? Like, let's, let's look and see kind of where they are um, and what kinds of things they're doing. And it doesn't have to be things that are, that are perfect. Like, you know, when I'm working in kindergarten classrooms, it's, it's not about can kids write a complete sentence? Um, you know, like we look at standards and the standards talk about um, asking and answering questions. And so I've talked with teachers a lot about how that's a thought process. It's not the grammatical structure of a question that we're looking for. We want to think about are our kids wondering, are they thinking about things? Are they curious? Are we building on what it is that they're bringing? And then when we begin to, you know, to see kids interacting with text and and look at the meaning that they bring to it um, as well as that they will have to explore those as the insights that we get into how kids are are doing this work so um, you know one of the examples that um, I talk about in the book is a uh, a lesson that I had with a little group of uh, first graders and um, it was a guided reading lesson and I was demonstrating for their teachers and know we're in this really simple little book and these were the kids that had been labeled the low kids right it's like see what you do with the low kids i said well i do the same things with you know kids at at any grade it's like you know i'm constantly using questions like what are you thinking what makes you think that or you know and and getting their ideas out so that i've now got a collection of things to work with that's what i was trying to think about is when they give me all of this gold i've got to figure out how to work with that to help the kids to see what it is that they're doing so in this particular little lesson um you know you always have the little kids who want to you know see just where your edge and your humor and so we're reading this book about spiders and you know first thing i said was tell me you know take a look through the book what do you already know about spiders and you know one of the one of the kids says well they eat insects and this little boy Joseph pipes up, and he says, well, they don't really eat insects. What they do is they suck their blood, and of course, you know, we're all just, you know, laughing and having a, you know, nice little fun time, but what that later on as we began to think about what we were learning in the book. We began to compare what the ideas that were shared by the author of the book with the things they had already come out with, and so, you know, I asked Joseph to think about, you know, why do you think you know, was your idea there? And he says, no. And I said, why do you think the author didn't include that idea? And he, he gives it two seconds of thought. And he says, well, because um, this book's for little kids and they don't want to scare little kids, which really is a very sophisticated way of looking at texts and how they're written and that authors consider their audience. And I think it's one of those those sort of ideas that I have to keep in mind what it is that kids you know, what, what do readers and writers and thinkers do? And then how can I help the kids to see that they're doing some of that work already so that, that uh, we find the gold and what it is that they offer to us?
2: So most of these schools that i worked in, um, a couple of years ago, I was running a project with a group of only four teachers, a very, very small group, who understood that they needed to change the way they talk to kids if they wanted to engage them really uh, deeply. And so I got them to listen to and look at their own language. And they discovered that, that they described that what it was that kids did in school, they always called it work, good work. Uh, the work they're going to do today is um, uh, get on with your work. And they realised that the constant repetition of that metaphor of school work or school activity equals work was really a negative thing for most kids. Uh, It it portrayed learning as a chore that you had to uh, go through. And they also uh, found themselves saying things like, today I'm going to teach you how to do X, or today we're going to learn how to do Y. Today we're going to learn some biology. Today I'm going to teach you apostrophes. They found that could shift that uh, discourse by saying things like, today we're going to make meaning about biology. Rather than just saying, I'm going to teach you about biology, today we're going to make meaning about math or biology. And just that simple little change of discourse changed the perception and ways that the kids responded to them. Mm -hmm. The big difficulty they had was that they couldn't give up using the word work. No matter how hard they tried, it was so I struggle,
1: with, I struggle with that one too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I talk about that
0: a lot, yeah. And I, I hear language is as a, as a, as one way to shift um, our belief systems about engagement and, I, and, I, and that's really what you're talking about here is, and I, and I find myself with the language too, like I said, you know, what does that look like? Well, as a principal, that's kind of how I was trained, was <clears throat> look-fors, you know, and, and I, I continue to struggle with that myself. And, but the examples you provide here um, are very doable and just create those conditions for engagement as you talk about throughout the book. And it goes to my last question then is for principals, for just teachers themselves who are looking to self-improve, how might teachers or how might leaders help teachers shift their belief systems just as you did from needing that external evaluation of am i doing this right to self evaluating how am i doing
1: one of the things that i try and think a lot about is is helping helping people to think about when when you look at at the that the work that we do whether you are you know in read aloud or shared reading or guided or workshop or you know whatever you're doing it's that it's sometimes coming back to purposes of it and what it is that we want to support our kids to be able to um, to do and to think and 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 beginning to understand that it's less about doing those different strategies than it is about using them to get us somewhere. One of the things that I'm often talking with teachers about is like you know listen for the way that kids are responding this like look in and and notice the um the language that's there so it's almost becomes more of a listen for than a look for um as you're in classrooms and and beginning to think about that what are kids revealing now obviously they are not going to say things in this these brilliant articulated ways that you know that are sometimes expected but um but but thinking about how they're how the kids are going about making meaning and how they're going about um uh coming to their understandings, and then, and recognizing that my work has to be responsive to that, as opposed to me going in with 20 questions that I'm going to ask, so that it becomes less of an interrogation than a conversation, um, and I think that's sometimes really hard for people to, to recognize that, because a lot of times teachers are, well, I have to plan my lessons, I have to plan my um, questions I said will you plan those um, I led a professional development once where we spent the entire morning planning out a guided reading lesson together a whole group of us about 15 20 teachers and then we brought the kids in and I taught the lesson and at the end of it when we were reflecting the teacher one of the teachers said you know, it was so great that you like you weren't like you weren't planned and I said wait 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 I said look at this chart right here we did plan I said but my my, my, my interactions with kids, I almost said work, Brian. My interactions with kids is not delivering that lesson. That lesson, though, helps me to think through possibilities. It helps me to think about, um, I mean, in a way, almost envision where we're going to go with this and what some of the possibilities are. Um, but I think really anticipating, you know, well, what might I do if kids say this or what might I do if kids say that Gives you that opportunity to think through some of those issues, so that then you can you put your plan like to the side, and then you you work with kids. So I I am an avid planner. I mean I I'm an over planner in so many ways. But what I have to do is be in the moment with kids, and I have to be responsive um, within that.
2: My my experience is from um, running a professional development course called frameworks. Um, We introduced it into just about every state in the USA, except Montana. And the way that we, that we got our teachers to start the process that Deborah has described was to give them the opportunity to identify and share their own values and beliefs about the learning process and how they put it into practice. I think it's absolutely essential that if you want teachers to start to make the change, you have to start where they're at and give them the opportunity to make explicit and explore what their beliefs are and how they put them into practice. And I was really surprised at how infrequently, teachers are given that opportunity. Either there's never time to do it, or someone comes in with a gee whiz program that they have to be, um, what's the term they use? They have to uh, maintain the fidelity of that program. You know, they can't vary from it. And very, in uh, very rarely do they get the chance to really explore what their own values and beliefs about learning or reading or writing are. So we found it was absolutely essential to provide that opportunity for teachers to authentically examine their values and beliefs and how they put them into practice and share them with other colleagues. So a lot of the Frameworks program was devoted to giving teachers that opportunity. Um, and then the second thing that we did was then, it felt like immerse them in the theory of others, others who had, um, say, written about teaching and learning, uh, others who had put together um, teaching strategies. and so we found that with those two sorts of opportunities the opportunity to explore and uh, really share your values and beliefs with others and listen to theirs and then be exposed to uh, a range of views that others that you may never have read or been introduced to, like you were introduced to Regie Routman and she really impressed you, That was an example of you being exposed to the theory and practice of others, people outside your immediate circle of colleagues. And so my advice to principals or professional developers who want to start the process is to provide those opportunities. Whatever program you put together, try to ensure that you give your clients the opportunity to identify, explore, make explicit and share their current values and beliefs, and then introduce them to the theory and practices of others and provide opportunities for them to keep, if you like, um, constructing and reconstructing and deconstructing the meanings that they're putting together through those experiences.
0: It's really honoring the the teachers as professionals and practitioners and uh, people who can and should be making those decisions every day, as Deborah was describing as well in the classroom. So I could talk to t- the two of you for hours. Um, this is terrific. And the book is terrific. It's called Made for Learning, How the Conditions of Learning Guide Teaching Decisions. It's a Richard C. Owens publication out August 2020. I was lucky enough to get a... Uh, advanced reader copy on my iPad, and um, I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed talking to both of you uh, today. So thank you, Brian Camborne and Deborah Crouch.
1: Thanks for having us.